Hello, Lit Up listeners. This week, we decided to bring you one of our favorite episodes with Stanley Tucci, or as I like to call him, the Tooch. It was one of our most beloved episodes, and it's all about food, and I feel like it's so inspiring for those last long weekends of summer where people are mixing Negronis and trying to think of what zucchini pasta they can make all together in the sunlight. Our conversation was inspired by the release of his book, Taste My Life Through Food. And our conversation made me laugh. We connected a lot through restaurants and New York City and how to make a great cocktail. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by actor, director, cook, TV show host, and Instagram's favorite bartender, Stanley Tucci. Stanley has a new book out called Taste, My Life Through Food, and I was so excited to talk to him because, like many people, I feel like I got to know Stanley during the pandemic through his wonderful show, Searching for Italy. I wanted to experience the world with him, and you get to do it all over again reading this book. Stanley joined us from his art studio in his home in London. Stanley and I share a mutual friend and wonderful human in common, Michael Sugar, who has produced a couple of films that Stanley has appeared in, like the Oscar winner Spotlight and a new film to Netflix called Worth. Now, unsurprisingly, Stanley is a warm and generous guest who asked me as many questions about myself as I asked him. We start the conversation talking about a lunch he had in France with none other than Meryl Streep. Here we go. Can I ask you about Meryl Streep? Yeah, yeah and you can. That fabulous story in the book because I've always enjoyed andouille the sausage because it's quite pungent and unusual but what is the difference between that and please help me with my pronunciation is it andouillette andouillette oh that's much better andouillette what's the difference and how did you come across this discovery so here's heaven and here's hell (laughs) That's the difference to me. (laughs) I think in your book, there's a a descriptor of what the second one is. And you said, it's repellent to the uninitiated. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like you'd you'd have to be initiated in many types of things to really stomach this. But please retell the story. Well, okay. So Andrea is a very, very ancient recipe so we go to this um little rest excuse me in normandy after we're at the um uh deauville film festival which is a great one of my favorite film festivals ever and it's so beautiful and the beaches are incredible and in the south of not south of france but in you know normandy god it's just gorgeous and so we're driving up to paris to do the press junket and we go to the Normandy beaches and 
we get a tour, really Meryl gets the tour, as I said in the book, because <laughs> nobody cared about us. And then we stop at a place for lunch that the driver had suggested. And it was really lovely, really, you know, un, unassuming, lovely place in the countryside. <laughs> and we eat outside and we see that Andriette is on the menu. So we order the Andriette. Andriette. And I say to Meryl, I said, yeah, you ever had Andriette before? And she goes, no. I said, it sounds good. I love Andriette sausage. Oh, yeah, I love Andriette sausage. Very good. Yeah. So we order it. And what arrives are plates of, like, what looks like on this, on a plate is basically like a horse cock. <laughs> so, and I'm not, I mean, I don't know if this is appropriate for the podcast, but it is, it looks like a horse cock. And you think, that's not what I imagined. Because I thought Andriette, as did Merrill, you know, because we're so literary and, you know, we thought, oh, et, Andre yes. sausage, Andre et, means it's even smaller. And sweet and, you know. Yeah, maybe sweet, maybe something adorable. So we get, we're confronted with this thing. We don't know what to do. So we dig into it. And it, I almost, I almost vomited. I took one bite and it never, it, I never swallowed it. And as it turned, and Meryl, <laughs> Meryl said, <laughs> she said, well, it does have a bit of the barnyard about it. And, <laughs> and it was, I've never, I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever tasted anything quite like that, nor will I ever again, if I could avoid it. It was fucking awful. But here's the thing, it was awful. <laughs> O-F-F-A-L. So that's what it was. It's just awful, wrapped in awful. That's it. They even put the colon into it. And it spices, I don't even know if it's cooked. It's cleaned, I know it's cleaned, but is it cooked? I don't know, I don't want to know. It was horrible, it was horrible, and then we ordered an omelet. Well, I've never. You just I, made I me laugh so much in your retelling because in the book I had <laughs> the like the the you know the the reaction and I just oh. thought oh also you know that wonderful feeling with you with a funny friend yeah and it you know this something happens that you know you'll literally kind of dine out on that story <laughs> together yeah yeah because yeah it's so good in the yeah. retelling. Um, I've never, I've never experienced anything like it. We still laugh about it to this day. Uh, yeah. Well, I had an extraordinary night last night, Stanley, and it was all inspired by reading your book. And so this is what happened. My, my boyfriend is Italian. He's a, yeah. a, 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 set, of, a set of brothers. Yeah. And they have restaurants in New York City. What? Yes. Wait, so, who is this fella? Tell his me. His name's Anthony Martinetti and his brother Tom. And what do they and have? What restaurant? So they had five before the pandemic and they have one on the Upper East Side called the East Pole. No, no, I don't know it. They had one downtown called Pizza Beach. like for, yeah. But he watched Big Night by himself at the Angelica when he was 23 
and was so influenced by that film. So wait for it. So then I get to go home and because we watched Searching for Italy, of course, in the pandemic, and it was just yeah. this balm yeah. for the soul. So we, you've been in our lives. And then I say, <laughs> I get to interview Stanley. And he was so excited, but also so jealous. And then I went to work yesterday and I left the book at home because I thought it's got a busy day. I can't touch it. Right. I'm coming back to it when I get home, you know, pause off. Right. He says, on my way home, come by the East Pole. I have a surprise for you. And I say, no, 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 no. I have to get home. I have to, you know, prepare, relax. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, this is a lot, but it's great. So no, I no, go no. The, go ahead. No. I go to the East Pole and he goes, this is the surprise. I've read the whole book and I have notes for you to ask Stanley. Yes. And I said, but. I've done my research and we sat at the bar, the bartender, he goes first off um, to Jamie, the bartender, we're having a Negroni, (laughs) two cheese way and all the people around arguments. No, that's the wrong way to do it. Yes. And I said, just give it to me straight the way he likes it. And then (laughs) they also, we also made your martini with, is it the Scotch rinse? But it was this crazy moment because we were having these drinks. A group of English people come in who are here for the UN, like a delegate for the prime minister. They see the book. So the book's on the counter and everyone is saying, I love, I love the Tooch. What? You're interviewing him? (laughs) Then everyone's ordering your version of the drinks. So Did they like them? What's not to like? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, come on. But also to say the joy you bring and the pure discussion we had last night. I wasn't meant to be drinking, but I downed the the Negroni. Good, good. So this is where here we are today. Just oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you say that because (laughs) I mean, to me, that's so much of what it's about. Maybe actually all that it's about is that we find joy through these things that connect us. And those things that connect us are, uh, come through our mouths. (laughs) And right. So we know, I know that sounds disgusting sometimes or sexual, but I think that the really nice thing is that if you have, if people begin to understand taste, what it means to really taste something, not just sort of go, Oh, that's great. Oh, that's booze. Oh, I want to get drunk or whatever. No, that's not what it's about. It's about what does that really taste? What really is a Negroni? And what are the variations on that theme? And and then what is a bowl of pasta? Is it just carbohydrate with some sauce? No, it's not. It's much more than that. If we can allow ourselves to question it, then we'll know it. Then we can figure out, and it's not a big deal. It's not like it's incredibly complicated. It's actually much simpler than you think it is. And But it's really just about acknowledging the fact that yes, we need food to sustain us, but how do we make it how do we how do we elevate it? Not by making it fancy, not by making it Michelin, 
just by making it good. It's just about quality. And even the poorest in Italy, that food was created out of necessity. But the quality of it was always a concern. And that's why we love Italian food today, because it is so simple. And in its best form, it is of the highest quality. And I think that ties into, A, the way your grandparents would focus on the quality of yeah. the produce that they grew themselves. Yeah. And that then it, it's the conversation that happens once you have the quality, beautiful food. It's that, that ephemeral human connection that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think we need that more now perhaps than ever because of just what we're doing right now. We're making a connection now through this device. But this device is also a thing that disconnects people. The way we can really, really connect with people is through food and sharing. It creates an environment, a convivial environment. And if there is one thing, I started to do some work a number of years ago with UNHCR, the you know United Nations. And one of the things we, we talked about, we're talking about refugees, is that the only thing that refugees, one of the only things that they can really bring with them are recipes. And transporting those recipes, because they're in your mind and they're in your mouth, taking those recipes to wherever you are and recreating them creates a sense of home. That sense of home creates, naturally wants to create a sense of sharing. Once you begin to share, we begin to have real contact and then we begin to grow as a society. And what we realized in these meetings that we were having about how do we connect, how do we help refugees, we realized there were, there were two things. The first one was food, and the second one was, was football. Not American football, but, but <laughs> soccer. So if we, take, if we just look at food, and we take what food does to people, what it, what it does to uh, ourselves individually, what it does to a family, what it does to a community, and then what it does globally. It is the, connected, the ultimate connective tissue, more than music, more than art, more than anything. It is the ultimate connective tissue. It's, it's something that, that we have to understand, that we have to grow, that we have to encourage. And it's, and it's a way, to me, to integrate refugees and immigrants into whatever community they've entered. Well, it's like for your family in the book, it's bringing those stories with us. And so if a mother can teach their children, if a grandmother can bring a part of home, a part of their family story and have that recreated on the table, and it's also a means of telling a story as well, which is what you're doing both with words but through food, and you've learned that from these incredible people who passed on their stories to you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of what's difficult now is that we're 
so accustomed to processed foods. So we've, we've destroyed palates, but we also haven't created palates. So we have to go backwards. We have to create palates in children, which are there innately, but we, we nullify them. We kill them with all the shit that they're given. We need to encourage them and grow them. So you have to start, you have to start with the palate. And then once that happens, then people say, oh, 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 that's a carrot. <laughs> oh, why does that carrot taste like that? Oh, that carrot tastes like that. Oh, well, maybe we should grow carrots like that. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but we, we have to be careful of numbing ourselves. Am I babbling on too Not much? at all. No, I could talk about food and food sources forever, so I am fascinated by this. And I'm probably making an odd connection here, but when you just talked about starting a palate from scratch, it reminded me of that you had cancer and you had a feeding tube. And essentially you talk about in the book having your entire palate, you had a break from food. Essentially it was bypassing the palate. Yes, because I had a tumor in my throat and I had high dose radiation, which destroyed my salivary glands and my taste buds and, and a lot. It's, I'm almost fully recovered from it, but that was three years ago. So it's taken three years. I still can't eat everything I'm, I want to eat. I still have to be um, discerning about, you know, you can't just grab a T-bone steak and <laughs> dive into it or, you know. It's like the person who's learning to walk again after a stroke. You have to relearn everything. And when you relearn something, it, it, excuse me, it makes you appreciate what you had. When you've lost something, it makes you appreciate what you had. When you relearn it, it makes you appreciate it even more. And, and sometimes then the experience of doing it, so everything I put into my mouth now or smell is heightened more than ever before. And part of that is simply, as I said, because of relearning. But part of it is because something changed. So I can smell things now that I couldn't smell before. I can taste things now in a way that I never did before. It's all brand new again. How extraordinary. It doesn't sound like you ever had too many aversions to things. Besides cilantro, yeah. Oh, you're one of those. You have yeah. the, the gene they've yeah, identified. It's a genetic thing, supposedly, yeah. If that's yeah. it, that's not bad. That's all right. Yeah. I want to also go back to a year that was very pivotal in your life. And this is kind of going back to your childhood, and it's 1973. And you lived in Italy for a year as a 13-year-old. Yes. And in the book you say a lot about on your father's salary, the sabbatical salary, you couldn't eat out a lot. So it wasn't necessarily a culinary exploration. Oh, no. <laughs> no. And I'm, I'm assuming that there was definitely um, no Andouette, uh, Andouette in, in that no, trip. No Andouette, you would have uh, no. remembered that yeah. viscerally. Yeah. It's interesting to be, you know, ha have the heritage of a, a country and grandparents and parents yeah. and you speak Italian. But to go somewhere, having never been on a plane, to this 
this homeland. How do you think that year affected you and the a lust for life that came from that? Or is that no, 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 romantic right. no, no, it, it did. What it, what it did was, okay, so you're coming from Westchester, New York. Do you know Westchester at all? I do. So my, one of my best friends grew up in, is it Kosciuszko? Is that in Westchester? Cusco, so. Mount Cusco. Mount Kisco. Mount Kisco, getting it wrong. <laughs> I just said Kosciuszko because that's Australia's no. tallest mountain. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you so for you helping me get... Mount Kisco, yes. So have you visited her there? I have. Okay. So if you take the train to Mount Kisco from Grand Central, the next town would be Bedford, right? You'd have Bedford Hills. Bedford, you'd have, yeah, you'd have Bedford Hills. And then you'd have Katona. Katona is where I grew up. So it was beautiful. So mm. 1960s, beautiful. Uh, bucolic. Beautiful old sort of what would be like American Victorian town, and then you had Mount Kisco and Bedford, and they're they're gorgeous, and a lot of the old buildings are still there, and they're quite beautiful. So if you go from there to Florence, and I've ne I had never been anywhere else. I'd been to Manhattan and Vermont. So you go to Florence first. You end up in Rome for a couple of days and then you're in Florence and you live in Florence for a year. It completely changes the way you look at the world and it, it changes your aesthetic without question. Also because my father was an artist. So mm. aesthetics were a very <laughs> big part of your daily life. Um, but also you're encountering a completely different culture, but that is actually your culture. You have to learn to speak another language. And I went into an Italian school and had to learn that language. So within two months, I spoke Italian fluently. And luckily, I was young enough. Now, can you imagine, I'm 61, imagine going to another country and just being thrown into a thing and go like, oh, yeah, there you go. Speak the language. You can't. because But your brain is adaptable at that age for languages. It it altered everything for me. And it stuck with me to the point where after I graduated from college in Westchester, about two years later, I went to travel in Europe by myself and got a Eurail pass and went to Italy for three weeks. I went through Italy from Rome from Rome up and I went to Vienna and I went to Paris and I went to London. And that was probably 1984, something like that. And I needed to get back. I needed, I realized that Europe was where I wanted to live. And ever since then, I wanted to live in Europe. And now I do, but I don't because of Brexit. <laughs> oh. The timing is terrible. Oh, it's Stanley. bad. It's bad. Yeah. But that time, if you imagine coming from Westchester, New York, and then going to Florence, where your father is studying at the Academia, which houses the David, hmm. those are polar, polar 
opposite. How did you adjust when you came home? Because well, was, I know you were weird. missing your friends. Yeah, I missed my friends. I missed, who are you I'm, now? Yeah, You're also so sophisticated. Butter. Yeah, I spoke Italian fluently, which of course now I don't. But I missed America. But then once I settled in, I began to sort of unconsciously and then consciously long for Europe. But that longing seems like it has infiltrated your life so much, even when you were in America. And I know that you worked in a restaurant, Alfredo's, <laughs> in New York. And as a as a person who's worked in so many restaurants and has found actual bliss, you know, it's in Big Night too. those nights where everything is working and it's like music is on and yeah. you've had a little wine yeah. and everyone's happy and yeah. it's just this joy, you know, and it can go from good to catastrophic so quickly. Yeah. Like that complete <laughs> yeah. Yeah. shambles can happen. And you're well, like, wait, you were can always I ask you, can, yeah. can I ask you a question? So working in restaurants, what do you mean? What did you do? And what restaurants? So, oh, so I was a server for a long time in Australia, in an Italian cafe. Yeah. Then when I came to New York, I worked at the Stanton Social on the Lower East Side. I moved to LA. Okay. But then... Then you moved to LA? Then I moved to LA and I worked at a place called Primitivo that a casting agent called Mary Venu owned in Venice. Right. And that's where I was Michael Sugar's waitress at that restaurant. No. Because all the casting used to happen out the back. I'm talking like Oliver Stone would come in, Olivia Wilde, people would, and I was the lunch shift because I was the new person. who. So you made no money at lunch, but I saw everyone. Oh, my God. I know. And so they would send me on auditions and that's, I met Michael. He was there with a whole group of colleagues. You know, what are you doing here? You know, an, an Aussie fresh <laughs> off the boat. You know, well, I think sometimes they're like, this could be our golden ticket, you know, yeah. but they sent me out on auditions at Anonymous Content. The first one was to be a Bond girl. I mean, I was just in what? heaven, but obviously there was no Fantastic. real talent to back it up. <laughs> and I think that news got back to them pretty quickly because Michael said to me, well, had a bit of feedback. Is there anything else you'd like to do? Really? He goes, why don't you go study writing? Fifteen years later or so, you know, I've gone to grad school. Jelena, I helped open Jelena as a server in Los Angeles. You mean the one in Venice? Yes, yes. Oh, amazing restaurant. Um, so this is where I got utterly immersed in food, wine. It changed my whole life. Uh, it was at that place that I fell in love with that world. Um, wow. My God. Yes. You live, you're so young and you live like so many lives. I'm 40, but it's the yeah, ring well, light that's yeah. really bright. I got news for That's young. <laughs> Uh, that's, no, that's, I feel young. That's amazing. But, oh, that's so cool. Okay. Yeah. And so it's actually, to kind of close the story, it was Michael, who we have in common, who encouraged me to go write, and I now run a book imprint for him. Isn't this wild? So the thing, the best that. things that have happened in my life have happened in, in restaurants. Yeah. I met my boyfriend 
an online date in a restaurant. Really? He owns restaurants. And I think this is why so many of us will connect with your book once they've had a chance to read it. And because you bring to life that we all have a story. And when you tell your stories, we want to tell ours back, you know, oh, good. to, to good. our imaginary Stanley best friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, to me, that's what it's a, that's what it's about. I mean, that's what I grew up with. My dad was a great kind of raconteur is the right, right word, but I say was, still is. He's 91. And what I, I think one of the things I love about him most, not only is he incredibly talented as an artist and as a mind, he's talented, but also as a, he's, he's the sort of embodiment of conviviality. He'll engage anyone. And I saw this from a young age and he taught me, he taught me that simply by example. He taught me that whoever's next to you, engage them, talk to them. And I still do that. I can't help but want to talk to someone. And that's how you learn. That's how you learn. And, and you can really do that around the table. If you go to Italy and you get in a taxi cab and you talk to the taxi driver, and you say, even if you just, even if you know where you want to go, right? You say, I'm taking here. You go like, hey, what what restaurant do you think serves the blah blah blah? And then they'll start talking. And then you say, oh well, you know, it's almost midday. What what do you what do you do for lunch? Well, I'm going to go home. I remember doing this <laughs> taxi driver. I said, he goes, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to make this. Or my wife is going to make this. We're going to eat it together. And I, oh, what are you going to have tonight for dinner? Oh, well, tonight for dinner, we're going to have blah, blah, blah. And my sister's coming over. Or we're going to go over to her house. Or my brother, uh, something. And that's where that connection happens. It happens, yes, at the table. But it can happen simply if you just ask a question. And unfortunately, in America, that doesn't happen as much now. And that because we're not we're not a food culture and we should be a food culture, given the landscape we have. And that's one of the things I just want to kind of, I guess, show in the show, but also maybe in the book that food is so crucial and it's not that complicated to do it. It's not expensive. The best food comes from a little ingenuity, usually when they're isn't enough to go around or we have to you know use the guanciale use certain parts of the animal <laughs> yeah to make nose things to tail, taste great nose to tail root to flower do it figure it out make it you know now it's really hard our lives are so hectic and people are juggling two jobs and and the owner should not only be put on the individual the onus should be put on the government to make this a possibility for everyone, to make good food available to everyone all the time. That, if we did that, if we did just that, what a healthy country we would be. And we'd also see our parents, our caregivers doing that, and then we emulate them. Like I think as kids... We copy what our parents do. Yeah. And. Yeah, you're right. You know. Yeah. I'm wondering, so if you have a crazy, hectic day, 
What's your go-to? I mean, you have oh my God. so I, I, many, you know, you have kids to look after. You have a oh, my really assistant, hectic so life. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Okay, today's <laughs> the perfect day. So today I had, I, had a, I had a doctor's appointment and then I came back. I had to read a whole bunch of stuff, do a whole bunch of emails and do all that sort of stuff, you know, that we do. Then it's podcasts like I'm doing mm-hmm. now. Now our nanny has taken off because her mom is in town. Felicity has been working all day and she's out to dinner with her siblings, which was pre-planned a long time ago. So she couldn't change it. My assistant Lottie is here doing everything. She's with the kids now. I'm doing doing all these podcasts and what, you know, you want to put the kids to bed. You want to do the, the thing, but because of time differences and all that, you can't do it. So tonight, what I'll, eat is probably I sauteed some leeks and onions earlier and I'll probably take a little chicken stock little peas um, maybe some pancetta and I'll put that in I'll toss it up with some pasta and that will be dinner with a little parmigiana and that's that dinner delicious. but you, you have to kind of think well how do I orchestrate this because you literally don't, like you don't have time to eat. But you want to make sure also that the kids are eating. So, anyway, it was long boring. I'm sure their palates, the though, are, are pretty sophisticated or just open because of the parents they have. Yeah, but they're still kids. You know, they kids. go like, mm, I don't like those peas. You know, like we ate them last night, you know. Why don't you like them tonight? I don't like peas. You know, three weeks later, I can't get enough of peas. You know, they're British, my children. So, yeah, it's that. I only have three minutes with you, Stanley. All right. I have two questions. We haven't had a chance to talk about your incredible relationships with both your first wife, Kate, and with Felicity. But I wondered if you could just share with us how Stanley Tucci woos. How I what? How I woo? How you woo. Yes. Oh, I don't know. Well, they say that the best way to a girl's heart is through her stomach. <laughs> I and think that might have something to do with it, a shared passion for yeah, things like that. Yeah. I mean, Kate loved food, loved food. Our first, and I wrote about it in the book, the, our yeah. first date was at uh, Tuval Bien, and it's been there since 19, God knows what. Uh, and it's one of the best French restaurants in New York, as far as I'm concerned, because it's simple, it's basic, it's truthful. At the time, you could get Tete de Veau, you could get an incredible cocoa bain, you could get a great boeuf bourguignon. I chose it just because I wasn't quite sure. It was small, it was intimate, but it wasn't fancy, it wasn't... I saw her eat, and I was... Smitten. Yeah, yeah, because she loved it, and she loved wine, and she loved eating, and yeah. And the same with Felicity. I, I find people who are not interested in food not interesting. I agree. I think it... There's a, a passion that is 
it's a passion for life, for taste, yeah. for love, for experience, for smell. It just translates in a way. So I, I love that answer. It does. It's in your, yeah, it hits you in your gut, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. Yes. What lights you up? What lights me up? Mm -hmm. Um, obviously food, good food, uh, engagement, risk at once, risk and comfort. So, how do you how do you use a fire? What's a fire for? Is it to make you comfortable and warm, or is it to ignite the future, or is it to destroy something? That, that's a question that I ask. That's what lights me up. Stanley, thank you so much. <laughs> I feel like if this was a film, there would be this long pause for us all to ponder, which I guess yeah, we can. Yeah, a long pause and the audience would be asleep. But <laughs> no, yeah. they wouldn't. Hey, look, they here's the thing. I want to meet your boyfriend. Oh, he would be. And you absolutely thrilled look i have wait what's his name his name's anthony martignetti his family is originally from naples thank you so much to stanley tucci for this interview and thank you all for listening next week we're speaking with christine pride and joe piazza about their novel we are not like them Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone.